Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey folks, Oliver here. This week I interview micromobility industry veteran Tarani Duncan about her journey and views on the development of the industry. She's really been around the block as an early employee of both Citybike and then what ended up becoming Jump. It felt like a historical tour of the shared space, and I think you'll really like it. Before I dig in, I want to thank our sponsor for the episode. One of the things that I talk about a lot on this podcast is the intersection between shared services and the governments that they need to work with. With COVID bringing cities around the world to a standstill, we are starting to see many of them move forward with key infrastructure changes that prioritize pedestrians, cyclists, and small electric vehicles. I'm bullish on the operators that will emerge on the other side of this, better at ops and integrated with their cities as essential services. That's where Populous is important. They're building digital tools that assist government agencies to manage their curbs, streets, and sidewalks with access to intelligent data and analytics tools. Last week, they announced the Open Streets Initiative to provide cities with digital solutions to identify and communicate slow and safe street policies. Oakland, California announced that 74 miles of streets would be closed to make it safer for pedestrians and small sustainable modes to travel for essential trips and create more space for social distancing. Populous works with cities around the world, from Buenos Aires to Baltimore, to help build trust between operators and regulators to see shared mobility become the big success that we think it can be. They run webinars and produce, in my mind, some of the best editorial content about the impact of micromobilities on cities in the US that I've seen. If you're looking to educate yourself better on the space, or are looking for tools to build trust with your local government to help take shared micromobility to the next level, check them out at populous.ai. I'm stoked that they're sponsoring this episode and supporting the work that we do in this space. And welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today, Tarani Duncan. How are you doing today, Tarani? I'm doing great. How are you? I am very well. I'm very well. You know, folks can't see this on the audio, but you are sitting in front of a beautiful, idyllic beach with some waves in the background, though it appears to be playing on loop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've reached peak cabin fever here. <laughs> Where are you in the world at the moment? I'm on a looping beach in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> With palms in the background. It's amazing. It's a, incredible how climate change has really changed the foliage up there already. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast, mainly because, you know, we've run into each other a number of times just over the time in, in micromobility, and I follow you on Twitter. You've been around for a while you clearly kind of get the space and the disruptive potential of it. And so I thought maybe what we could do is just have a jam on, I learn a little bit about you and what your background is and how you came to this and then what you're kind of seeing in the space as well. So I thought maybe what would be useful is talk us through who is Tarani? Where did you come from? Where, you know, how did you get into the space? And we'll go from there. Yeah, well, I'm from East Tennessee originally, so I'm from the South. And I grew up riding 
dirt bikes and my mom messaged me today and was like, remember when you had an electric scooter as well? She was like, you always talk about the dirt bike and I hated the dirt bike, but I loved the kick scooter because it was, yeah. So yeah, I've always experimented with smaller modes. I've always loved them. And then you and I kind of talked about this before we started recording, but I was living in New Orleans around the time that Airbnb was kind of taking off. I was a bartender. I was a very casual deckhand. I was like working on boats. And I owned a, a bed and breakfast. And so I was initially studying hospitality, tourism management, uh, and thinking a lot about like peer to peer and how to channel resources back into the community instead of like hotel giants or, you know, like these, these tour operators that were kind of like creating these wacky impressions of actual cultural rituals that happen locally. Yes. <laughs> so the idea of the bed and breakfast was like, what if we had a cozy place to stay, but we also were a place where folks could connect with people who were living there and channel resources straight to them instead of like a caricature of, of who they are. And so while I was studying hospitality resort tourism management, I had these two professors, David Gladstone and Bridget Bordelon, and they were talking quite a bit about like the dual city that happens when you have low paid hospitality workers. And then like these big hotel chains or these, these big like destination management companies. And especially after Katrina, what we were seeing in New Orleans was just people are having a hard time getting transportation to even go to work, let alone like doctor's visits or having access to fresh produce or groceries at all. And so I completely switched gears uh, and started studying transportation and geospatial analytics because it seemed like the best thing I could do. <laughs> Like I started off trying to do peer-to-peer -peer stuff, but it seemed like the, the bigger root cause was land use and transportation. And so I felt like this was a space that I needed to get into. And that was back, I think, in like 2010. So I've been in the space for about 10 years now as a researcher and also an operator. Yeah, awesome. And so you'd studied, as you say, GIS and land use. And so talk me through what the path from that to operations for micromobility, working for Jump and, and City Bike and things like that. How did that pathway go? Because that seems like a quite a, like circuitous. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was crazy. It was crazy. I was so I was. We were always overbooked at the bed and breakfast, and we were also living there and next door as well. So sometimes I was living out of like my Isuzu Rodeo, and we overbooked the inn and like. I think I spent like my last $10 on a New York Times at a coffee shop in Bayou St. John. And I saw in the New York Times that Ulta Bike Share was getting bought by Motivate and that the CEO was going to be Jay Walder, who was also CEO of the MTA, Hong Kong Rail and Transport for London. And I think I, I got chills when I was reading the article, which sounds silly, but I was like... <laughs> hey, it's all right. You're among nerds. <laughs> I was like, this is it. And so I wrote everyone I could write. The executive director of the Transportation Institute where I was working uh, somehow knew like Jeanette Sadi Khan and wrote her. And I got an intro to someone at, at City Bike. And I was one of Motivate's first tires back in the day when they called City Bike Glitchy Bike. <laughs> I was working on technical operations there. Yes. Yeah. So that's how I got into the space. So I, I bought a magazine or newspaper. Yeah, 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 no, no, and so and so you ended up in New York, and that would have been what twenty twelve. It was it was twenty fourteen. Yeah, the hospitality work lasted for for three or four years, and then started doing more transportation related things. But yeah, it was it was just after November when Alta Bike Share handed over the reins to Motivate. We had inherited kind of like a legacy system with a lot of management issues. 
It was also before phase two expansion of City Bike. So we went from, you know, thousands of failures a day, really bad issues with like management and day-to-day operations to like 70,000 successful rentals a day, 14 million trips a year, completely read it all, all the hardware and software, started training people. Like it was a really big like um, moment, I think, in shared mobility history. Like City Bike could have not been a thing. It could have stayed glitchy bike and it could have just disappeared off the map. Uh, and being part of the management team that kind of turned it around and having memories of biking around uh, Midtown Manhattan at like three in the morning, working on stations and stuff. It's just like, it's a very sweet moment in transportation history. And I have a lot of love and appreciation for for bike share. I think it's, I think it's an awesome solution. Yeah, amazing. So with City Bike, how many years were you there? So I worked with Motivate for about, I think, four years, three and a half, four years. I was at City Bike, I think, for a year and a half or two years. I went on to work at Bike Town in Portland, Oregon and help launch it uh, because we had this awesome vendor called Social Bicycles. Yes. Which <laughs> was not familiar. <laughs> yeah, which, which became Jump. So it was really funny after Uber bought. I don't think that Ryan likes it when I say this, but I get a kick out of it. When Uber bought Jump and Lyft bought Motivate or acquired most parts of Motivate, uh, there's still a partnership in Portland, Oregon of like a uh, Lyft and Uber operated bike share system. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's like, oh, it's funny. Good yeah. Time. Which, which, Good yeah, time. which must be a, a, a little bit of a headache for the folks at Peabot, but it's just, it's like the best of both worlds. Like, so I moved, the reason why I chose to work at Bike Town was I was helping with this concept, which was Ryan from Jump, the CEO, like his initial concept, which was what if the technology wasn't on the docking stations themselves, but on the bikes as IoT devices, which was the whole thing that made this explode. Uh, and what if we could use like these low, really simple to make docking stations or, or just public bike racks and use a mixture of like branded mobility hubs and also public infrastructure to, to let people choose when they park in a designated area or if they need to lock up a bike while they're on an errand. So it was kind of really the first hybrid mobility hub slash free-floating bike share system in the world. Cool. And that was launched, if I remember correctly, in like 2016? 2016, yeah. You're up on your bike share history. Oh, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I did, well, I did follow it because I remember when I first came across bike share as a concept, I was like, this is brilliant. And then, you know, the challenge with all of those were, right, like you'd go to, like I spent a bit of time in London and you'd try and use the Boris bikes and they were just... It wasn't integrated with Oyster. The payment process was always a yeah. giant pain in the ass because it was totally. like, oh, yeah. you know, like I'm coming from overseas and then they don't recognize my overseas credit card. And I just, you yeah. know, it's like just, and terrible interfaces. Yeah. Like, high friction. Super yeah. high friction. You know, I really love Ryan's vision for what he tried to do with social bicycles and then jump. Obviously, I, I left Uber right before we bought jump and I was really like, always a little bit gutted because all my favorite people at Uber ended up in the jump team. And I, from a cultural perspective, I just really like what they've tried to build yeah. in a way. They're, they're like the MO of how they do things. Totally. So you went to Portland, you helped them launch that. At that stage, the vehicles that they would have been using weren't electric, right? It was st- it was like had intelligence of the vehicles, but they weren't electric bikes, right? They were tanks. They were like 75 pound, beautifully branded bikey town bikes. That's what people call them. Yeah, cool. Yeah, they have the integrated basket. I mean, they're still around. You can you can rent one here in Portland. And also, Social Bicycles has legacy systems kind of all over the states. So maybe you've seen one. But yeah, they were analog, and they had like a little solar panel on the back that powered the IoT device. Yeah. 
similar to what ended up becoming like what Mobike ended up becoming or like an OFO, right? With that sort of unlockable system. When you say it was high friction, like what did you end up having to do to be able to unlock them at that stage? So I, I don't necessarily think that social bicycles, I don't think Bike Town is as high friction as some of the legacy systems, some of the other ones. And that's purely just because we don't have to deal with the, the docking mechanisms latching securely to the hardware. But yeah. it was just, it was a really great, um, and you probably saw it on the first generation of e-bikes, jumpy bikes in San Francisco, just a U-bar that went through the wheel and into the IoT device. It was, I think, superior. I'm very biased. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I think it was superior to anything that Mobike and Ofo had because their business model was just completely different. They were kind of like, we're going to spray as many bikes as possible over the place. Whereas I feel like, and like very cheap hardware, knowing that they were going to see like, I don't know, high rides. High levels but of churn, yeah. 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 Whereas, you know, these bikes are still going strong four years later. Like they last. So the proof is kind of in the pudding there, I would say. And at that stage as well, those were part funded by PBOT? It depends on the city, right? It's a private public partnership for sure. There's some in-kind donations that can happen, but sometimes you have to rent like paid metered parking. I think in Portland, it's a revenue share. Like after X amount of revenues hit, then there's like a waterfall that goes back to the operator. And I forget the details of how it works, but it's definitely like a solid P3. Whereas I think like, I think the most liberal funding of public bike share is capital bike share in DC. I think they cover like 70 to 80% of all the operators operating expenses there, wow, okay. which is a motivate system as well. But that could be outdated information. Yeah. Cool. So you were at Jump and then you ended up, as your LinkedIn says, a director of market intelligence. Is that correct? Yeah. My, my family, when I would go home for Christmas, was like, maybe she's in the CIA, but I think it has something to do with bikes. Um, <laughs> it was definitely like one of those startup titles, which would, I think director of operations intelligence really just meant nerd. Yes. <laughs> so I was like the director, like data analytics obsessed with continual improvement lady. So I, I'd worked so closely with Ryan's team when I was operating their system. When I was at Byte Town, I was still a Motivate employee. We had done so much for continual improvement, both from a hardware perspective and a software perspective, that it just kind of made sense to, to partner more deeply and to call a spade a spade. And so I started working at Jump. The biggest thing that I focused on when we were going to market uh, was really kind of like trying to prove the Jump business model ahead of acquisition by Uber. Yeah. And so part of what that entailed was being obsessed with operational efficiency. And so much of what that means in a free-floating bike share system is just making sure that the vehicles are where people want them, if, that they're in the right place at the right time, and that they're working. I worked with an engineer at Jump to develop software to help rebalancers understand where to put bikes at the right time so that we could show over 10 trips per bike per day to your colleagues and get them excited to buy us. <laughs> well, we've had one of the colleagues who's responsible for that transaction, Dimitri, on the podcast. We can oh, talk yeah. about that because I know you know yeah. him for other reasons. Yeah, yeah. So just before we go there, though, so you ended up at Jump. You did that. I, I do have a question about that because I did see Ryan being interviewed by Jason this week in Startups. He was one of the original Uber investors. And he was saying that apparently Jump had managed to work out how to do incentivized drop-offs inside of the app so saying like we need to the bike to be recharged we'll incentivize someone one dollar to go and drop it off here and 
nobody I've ever been able to talk to has been able to like tell me how effective that was. Like, did you have high levels of robin? Did it actually make a big difference in this in terms of like operations? Any insight that you can share on that? I think so. <laughs> I'm gonna we'll <laughs> let's yeah. just say yes. Let's say absolutely. <laughs> so I was at Jump. I was kind of transitioning out during this time, but one of my last projects at Jump was incentivizing users to help us out in San Francisco. And so what we did was we looked at, we didn't open it up to everyone. We identified a cohort that rode jump bikes a lot and they rode them pretty close to where we needed the bikes dropped off to be charged. And we made this really funny like <laughs> website, like a really janky interface, <laughs> like a char- we called it the charging map. Uh, and we shared it with, with that cohort. Uh, and we saw, I think within the first two weeks, people dropping off enough bikes at the warehouse, uh, enough counter commuters or people just commuting near the warehouse to replace at least six fans worth of, of bikes. And that was like, not a big group of people at all. Yeah, you just kind of identify people where the, the behavior change is super low hanging. And also we gave them ride credits too. So if you picked up a bike, you know, on the west side of the mission or something, it, you would get more credits than if you picked it up just like, I don't know, a few blocks away from where we were. Yeah, it worked really well. And did you have people literally like opt in just to get credit or was it typically like a, cause this is one of those things, right? It's like, is it behavioral change in the sense of you're kind of nudging someone's behavior or are you inducing new behavior in the sense of getting people to like go and across town, pick something up and drive, you know, bring it back to you sort of thing. I mean, what's kind of crazy and gets kind of into the like gig economy and like at what point do you wield incentives versus like, when is it like unethical to do so? We saw a lot of people who were delivery drivers and who are gig workers or who did gig work like Uber Eats by e-bike be really receptive to getting credits so they could then subsidize their food deliveries. But that also gets really messy. You start having people kind of play whack-a-mole for their livelihood and you don't really want to do that. So there has to be some sort of like opinion you have about when it isn't, isn't okay to incentivize certain behaviors. Like when are you being exploitative? Like when are you gamifying someone's life? And also there's a really interesting video on Vimeo about this. It's about Bike Angels, City Bike incentive program that gives people like badges and points. Oh, really? Okay. I don't know about this. What's the Bike Angels program? So the Bike Angels program is basically was the program that set up incentives for the, like they were the first people to do it uh, at City Bike. Yeah. I think it was like Anna Kazan was the first data person to really like look at this and What you find is that there are some power users who are addicted. Like one of the things that I saw in the Vimeo documentary was like someone on Christmas morning or on Thanksgiving being like, sorry, babe, I'm going to go, I'm going to go move bikes around for points. Um, So it's just kind of like. Yeah, how important. Yeah, yeah, just like your dad will be back soon, honey. We are, he loves, he loves this. So it's like. It does something, it kind of hacks the human reward system. And there are certain kinds of folks who like really buy into it and really love it. And it's up to the individual to kind of like draw boundaries on yeah. around that. But it's also, yeah, it gets really, I'm like, I, I think I'd be mad at my partner if she just dipped on Thanksgiving to go and do this. And like, we would have to talk. <laughs> We're gonna, but but look, you know, it, it's like you look at something like Wikipedia and the reward system that they have in place, and it's entirely free. But and yet, it is still, it's amazing how how motivated people can get beyond just simply money motivations. You know, there's something about social credit and all that sort of stuff that really really makes a big difference. I mean, Uber, I think, like, has done a lot of as everyone knows, like, with drivers and trying to keep them 
going and like managing supply. Like there's a lot of hacky like gamification stuff that happens even within the app. And like, this is a really, I think, interesting topic. Completely, <laughs> completely. Yeah. So following on, so you were at Jump for a while and then you ended up at Mapbox. Yeah. Awesome. So can you talk us through Mapbox? Because Mapbox is one of those companies that I've come across a number of times and never really fully understood. And I bet there's a lot of the audience who probably don't understand a lot about what they do either. Yeah, I think that's because it's like they sell Legos for you to make what you need to make. Yeah. More than they make like an end-to-end solution. So there's a few different teams at Mapbox. There's like the Maps SDK, which, you know, powers Maps and Snapchat, the Weather Channel, like they have Tinder, like all of those, all those companies. And they have their value proposition is just super customizable maps that you can do really cool things with like Easter egg hunts and Snapchat. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, I used to use them anytime I had to do like a community board meeting and show people a map, I would use Mapbox to style it, print it out because they just make, they basically make the Photoshop for maps, which would be Mapbox studio. Uh, but they also have a, a navigation team. So there's a few products there. There's uh, you can get turn by turn directions through the directions API. They have a predictive large matrix for logistics customers, which allows you to generate a million ETAs in less than five seconds. So that would be like an input to, (laughs) it's insane. And so that's like an input to a solver that would pair the right driver with the right delivery at the right time. Yeah. So things like that. And when I was at Mapbox, I, I decided I needed to go there because everyone treated me within the context of operations as a highly technical person because I knew MySQL and I knew GIS and I was doing all sorts of like operations, like optimizations all the time. And even experimented a bit with like the vehicle routing problem. It's literally like you're trying to solve on the fly, a very difficult, like multi-variable equation, right? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. You can have all sorts of constraints, like how big is your car? What's the time window of delivery? And it is a tough problem with just 25 stops and a handful of constraints, you generate as many solutions as there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So it's right. like an insane yes. space. So <laughs> yeah. I needed to, I needed to go to Mapbox and yeah. I needed to do like a tour of duty at a software company that was, you know, working with some of the most sophisticated logistics companies in the world. They're also working with innovating how we experience navigation. Is it haptics? Is it augmented reality? Is it across two form factors like turn by turn in your car play unit and dash, like all kinds of things. So I, I got my software tour to duty in at, at Mapbox and I was working as a product manager of logistics there, mainly on the really hard problem of optimizing the last mile for parcel delivery companies and on-demand companies as well. Yeah. Fascinating. But then you left and you ended up at Shared. I did. So for context, (laughs) give people like, I loved Shared as I, or I love, yeah. I, mean, I guess it's no longer really a thing these days, but yeah, um, I did. I did love it too. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting, <laughs> you know, when Horace and I talk about sort of the Cambrian explosion of vehicle types in the micromobility space, I loved when Shared came along because it was like, see, it's proving our thesis. Yeah. Yeah. Same. <laughs> so do you want to talk through what it was, what they did, why they were interesting to you? Yeah, for sure. So I liked Shared for a lot of different reasons, but the main thing that made me jump ship and and join a startup was um, from Mapbox to like a a much more riskier venture was the form factor. So it's like this big, beefy, seated scooter. Uh, You can stand on it if you want to. And it's got like these like ape hanger handlebars. And every time I rode a shared scooter past a breathing human, they would say something like, 
that's tight. Or I hate all of the scooters, but I love that one. Like even the most curmudgeon like people who are anti-shared vehicles and public right-of-way were super interested in the form factor because it, it looked a bit nostalgic. It looked like a banana bike, but like souped up like a dirt bike. And it was just like widely appealing to people. The form factor was designed to help people act kindly and, and be aware. So the, the wide set handlebars actually kept people from riding on the sidewalk. So you'll see in a lot of like cities who are wanting folks to apply for permits to operate there, that they want like sophisticated things like semantic segmentation to be able to tell when there's sidewalk riding or when they're on the street. We thought a much more practical low hanging solution would be make it really uncomfortable to ride on the sidewalk, but make it a joy to ride on the street. And so we were operating in Portland. Interesting. Okay. The vehicles were like, just for folks who are trying to get a mental image of what these things look like, they're big, giant tires, sort of like a squat car tire in terms of width and then low. Did you ever see that original design of the Scruiser? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you buying the hardware from those guys or did you get some sort of cheap hardware from, from China and a similar design that you then retrofitted? It was proof of concept and MVP. So we ordered from a cost-effective supplier <laughs> yes. in yeah. China and made yeah. proprietary improvements in Portland in our warehouse. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. They're very cool. And it is, it's very, it's a very intangible thing. But those were, like, I've always wanted to go for a ride on one just because I'm just like, they look so cool. Yeah, they're selling them now if you want one. Oh, are they? Okay, yeah. Unfortunately, (laughs) importing crap to New Zealand is always just, like, really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask, what did you learn when you were there? Because that's obviously, you were kind of very early on operations. How long were you there for and what was the story with them? I was was there from July until October uh, when we parted ways. I think the, the biggest thing was just like barrier to entry when it comes to uh, shared mobility operators is really high. Like uh, operations cost a lot alone for a single market. You're looking at like $150,000. And if you're a pre-seed company, it's like most of your runway just went to getting insured, let alone capital cost and all the software development time. Luckily, the CEO that I was working with was a really talented software engineer, so we could cut costs in that way. But yeah, I think I just learned, I, I developed a lot of empathy for people trying to make it in micromobility, like smaller mom and pop shops, like just, it's really hard. You have to be venture backed with the current situation. And it, it also made me realize that like, you know, we do need to figure out the P3 model. We do need to figure out third party sponsorships and kind of, you know, do away with like the superfluous R brand first situation that's happening in shared mobility right now and really so think of creative. P- Sorry, what's P3? So it's a private public partnerships. So like, yeah, like NYC DOT, Motivate, uh, partner with Citibank to bring you Citibike. And it's a sustainable, sustainably funded shared mobility system. They have, you're not just getting by on like VC and prayers alone. Like you're really kind of like building a, a business. Shared mobility is really difficult to nail. You have to have a sustainable funding mechanism to make it work. And it's, it's kind of made me realize how powerful like longer term rentals could be for form factors like that or just direct to consumer. Like I think that, you know, when people talk about micromobility, oftentimes they think about these shared mobility schemas like kick scooters all over the world. But it's really important to think about like the middle ground, which would be maybe like longer term rentals and then direct to consumer as well. And also leveraging 
shared as a, a sales channel could be, I mean, as Bird does, is, you know, I think pretty powerful as well. So those are all things that come to mind when I think about my time at Shared. Yeah, cool. Nice. Talk me through what you've been doing with um, Astro Cowboy since you left there. Yeah, I've been consulting for some of my favorite companies in the space, kind of transitioning out of Shared and figuring out what I was passionate about. I realized that there are a lot of cool like picks and shovels companies emerging. Individual operators had done quite a lot and in, in scaling pretty quickly. And it felt like the the situation was feeling precarious company to company. And, you know, there was there's a push, I think, especially even now to like pivot and figure things out. So it felt like a much safer play instead of hopping to another company to to be a consultant and work with some of my favorite picks and shovels companies who were focused on problem spaces that would be out of scope for what any individual operator could could do in-house well. And examples of that would be demand management, which is Zoba, and yes. autonomy, which is Tortoise. Yeah, cool. I've got, well, obviously I've had Tortoise with Dimitri on the podcast. I really like the Zoba guys. I'm really keen to have them on the podcast as well, just because they're so, oh, yeah. they're very interesting. And the conversations I've had with them have been like, man, yeah. you guys get it in like a level that I just can't, yeah. So very deep level of analytics, you know. Yeah, you'll see a lot of these companies kind of hiring on like, I don't know, like directors of data science and the, the, they'll say like, hey, you need to focus on member acquisition. You need to focus on staying sticky. You need to check out like fraudulent charges on credit cards and how to minimize those. And oh, while you're at it, can you figure out optimal distribution of a free-floating fleet? And yes. it's like... <laughs> <laughs> like no one can do it well unless they unless they want to spin up their own startup in-house. But it's my sense that that's not a good use of resources. And yeah, the, the team at Zoba is just fantastic. And I've been thinking a lot of what they've been working on for years in my, in my career. It's like the number one problem, uh, especially in free floating. And they're the first team I've met that I've been like, oh, yeah, you get it. Like, <laughs> we need you. Like, if we're going to be successful... <laughs> And serving uh, more people on inducing modes, which we need companies like Zoba. Yeah. You know, hearing you talk about shared and your experience there and and that there's still so many pieces that you, you know, it's like, oh, you have to develop software, you have to develop the hardware integration, you have to develop all of that stuff I can see modularizing over time that they're going to be build yes. the building blocks and there'll be services that you can combine relatively easily and we'll be able to build services and spin up services way quicker and way more easily than we currently can. And Horace has oftentimes talked about that this business model, especially in the shared space and for micromobility, really lends itself to franchising. But those systems really, you know, because someone can run a restaurant, but like, where do you really want is McDonald's? You want a relatively consistent experience across it, you know, when you know that you're unlocking a scooter or any device, whatever it is, if you're going to try and get a shared service, that you can access best in class stuff. So for the audience as well who don't know who Zoba is, while we're just you know, fanboying on them, they do analytics for, as you say, distribution of, of fleets, et cetera. So like, where do you put the scooters? And Yeah, all kinds of fleets, not just scooters, but mopeds and autonomous vehicles. And yep. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Talk me through why you liked Tortoise and the autonomy angle. I'm super bullish on autonomy, but I, you know. I'm the opposite, actually. Oh, okay. I feel like, I mean? I feel like the Alex Roy of scooters because I'm like... <laughs> Human Scooting Association. Um, I love Dimitri, and I think that Tortoise is brilliant. And I part of the reason why I am advising for Tortoise and investing my time and in, in thinking about what they're doing is that it's, it's something that is a blind spot for me, or I have like a lot of internal hesitation around autonomy. I would say that I'm more bullish on autonomy for these smaller form factors than I am 
cars or like objects that are over engineered or taking up, up that much real estate. I'm like, yes, delivery bots, smaller, you know, micro mobility form factors being autonomous makes a lot more sense to me than a massive vehicle. But yeah, I think it's, I think it's fascinating. I am what's much more tractable, even though I was saying that it's a really hard problem to solve is using software to find optimal distribution and kind of surfacing net savings and like more revenue through just the optimal placement of vehicles. I think to use autonomy then to, as a next level to facilitate that movement uh, is incredibly compelling and, and teleoperations is, is very compelling as well. I mean, it, it just has to be teleoperated given the constraints that we see now. Mm-hmm. Is autonomy the best tool in our quiver to drive the end result that we want to see? I think the verdict is still out on that. Like there's a lot you could do just around workforce training, having operations vehicles that are more sustainable, using companies like Zoba to be more efficient that seem more tractable today. But I'm also not going to be the lady at Kitty Hawk that boos an airplane for being two feet off the ground for 200 yards. Like it's still flying. Yeah. And I feel like the innovation is going to happen. I think that we should stay focused on it as like an R&D project and to continue to watch it closely. And I trust that Dimitri's executing it in a in an awesome way. Like I, I know that he is. But I also think that there's more short-term tractable solutions to some of these problems that autonomy can eventually solve that we should focus on. And it's always nice to think about like the sexiest, most high tech solution and, <laughs> and imagine that we're, <laughs> yeah, like that we're in the Jetsons, but like, uh, sometimes it's as simple as like, well, you need to train your fucking employees. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like... And also as well, swappable batteries. That's the thing that's like so yeah. fascinating. You talk to operators yeah. and you're like, oh man, it just like cut my operating expenses in terms of. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You and know, your like CapEx, you don't have to have as many of like extra float of hardware and scooters on hand if you're just, you know, increasing your uptime per vehicle. Yes. There's a lot of low-hanging things that we're kind of divorced from as, you know, software and tech people who want to come in and be like, well, we'll tell those blue-collared operations people how to do it. That just isn't smart and is comes off kind of foot and mouthy. And I just want to make sure that one of the things that I am keeping track of within like micromobility uh, and transportation is just like how important those field jobs are, especially now, like when you think of COVID. Mm. Yeah. And just in training people and and knowing that like none of this would work without boots on the ground and, you know, collaborating with the people whose hands are on it every single day and how to improve it. Like there's some really just low hanging common sense things that we can do to, to make micromobility more efficient. And is autonomy eventually a part of that story? Sure. But today it's, it's kind of reassociating with the fact that you have an operation, it's your job to work with maintenance staff to maintain it. Like, I think that's kind of like, people don't like to talk about ongoing maintenance because it's not sexy, but I think it is because it is how <laughs> anything, anything in the world works. It's like, the, if we're as good as the garbage man, we're doing a really good job. Yes. Yep. No, I love it. So there's two more companies I wanted to discuss because it, it's like I looked at your LinkedIn and I was like, gee whiz, you're working with these are like really cool. I mean, you've got such a wide spectrum of you know different kind of sectors of the industry so you've got our streets and karmic and i wanted to talk to you about our streets and what they do so can you explain the service and how they're thinking about it sure yeah and i want to add to your list uh data contours cool can talk okay. about them because it overlaps with our streets a bit so our streets is is awesome that they're basically a, it's a crowdsource app to report when things are awry and public right-of-way so it could be that you have a delivery truck blocking a bike lane 
creating a, a dangerous condition on a road somewhere in the world. Uh, it could be that there was a scooter that was blocking egress, but the person who reported it also resolved the issue. So therefore operators don't have to spend time chasing ghost tickets for issues that have already been resolved. So it, it's, it's actually a pretty strong value proposition on the operator end because they spend thousands of hours chasing their tail when it comes to their assets might be blocking public right of way. Yeah. So our streets has recently pivoted with COVID to be a crowdsourcing app that's focused on surfacing the level of essential goods at each retailer, at the retailer level in, in your city. So I can search for if I want to find a flower or hand sanitizer or toilet paper, I could enter that search criteria into our streets and see which local retailer has those three things. So I can go to that one shop, get everything I need and go home without being exposed. So a lot of people are going to like one store, seeing that they don't have toilet paper, having to go to a second location to find toilet paper because of how supply chain has been working during COVID and people have been hoarding things. Interesting. So they will report it into the app and then that just kind of goes into the ends up being like information in the in the system yeah okay cool yeah it's like a repository for where you can find things locally and i think that that pivot was just so so they did it in like seven days or something it's testament to how nimble that team is and how in touch they are with the needs of you know the city whether it's operating shared mobility systems and helping figure out a way to have those systems integrate into cities more functionally or if it's you know something like what store has everything i need but it also depends on people gathering information. So that's a really important piece of crowdsourcing is if you don't notice something in your local community. Design and like you yeah. know, people going out and being like, I'm going to get the gold shield. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We were, we were talking a lot about Animal Crossing as like a way of thinking about it. Yeah. The part that I really liked about the Our Streets model when I first saw it was this idea of Something like parking info, it sounds like I'm a really horrible person, but I get really pissed when people are parked in places they clearly shouldn't be. At the moment, it's a challenging thing to be able to go and find somebody who can enforce it. But if you have a heap of people all reporting it, then it becomes obviously a lot. Like there's a there's an element of, of crowd, you know, like crowdsourcing, dropping in somebody who's doing something bad, which just sounds really bad. But, you know, it's like, well, they shouldn't be doing it in the first place, you know. That that data is generating actual insights for, for cities. So like, where do we see bike lanes blocked? Do we need to crack down on enforcement there? Do we need to make a change to the infrastructure there so that people can't, like, should we put bollards up? Uh, and then from a, an operator perspective being like, dang, when we have users park in this area, they're a lot more likely to block egress. So maybe we could ask them to please park over here or do something in app upon trip in to, it's, it's just, it's more data. So it's, it's helping, you know, folks on the city side, it's helping vulnerable road users, helping operators have a more, have more data in hand to, to be better partners to the city and the communities they're operating in, which, which they want. Yeah. Um, so it's great. Is there an increase in the amount of yield that you can get from parking revenue because you've got people now reporting and so it makes those parking offices more effective in their job? So say, for example, I was like, well, we've managed to increase the efficiency or the effectiveness of these parking enforcement operators by 10%. So let's actually take 10% of this revenue yield that we've managed to get and pay it out to people who are in the Our Streets app. You know, like, oh, yeah, you get paid a dollar if that person gets successfully prosecuted or something like that. Yeah, totally. I don't want to... So I think if we have created conditions as, and this is me being like very tyranny, but if we've created conditions where someone's getting a ticket and they failed, that's just an infrastructure mess up. 
Uh, like it shouldn't be that we're a high gotcha people. Yes. Also the people who are generally suffering under a high gotcha, here's a parking ticket. It's just sad and like kind of predatory. I do think that there should be punishment for being naughty in public right of way and, and doing belligerent things. But it's also just such an infrastructure problem. So I don't think, and I, I can't really speak on behalf of our streets or Mark, but I think that there's there's something here where it's like, well, why don't we generate data to create, to be used in policy changes or infrastructure projects to figure out how we can promote better behavior instead of skimming money off of parking tickets. Do I sound that horrible when I ask that question? <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, it makes it makes sense because you want to know what your value proposition is and you want to figure out how to what's this the price of this good for this data set for a city yeah no, no, um, and that's of very course fair. that would be that would be an input to that i'm sure but um i think like big like zooming out like a larger vision would be like dang like if we could use this just to make sure that people are living in harmony wouldn't that be nice yes look i completely agree it actually kind of brings me to a point around what data is useful that's currently locked and how do we unlock it? Because I think that's one of the sort of, you know, the reason I like our streets was it's like, it's working out how to kind of collect that data to help make a city and micromobility systems and everything run more efficiently, right? And I see it as sort of one of the things that you're, we were even talking about before with like, for example, the rise of Zoba, that information is now being able to be unlocked. And that's a business model innovation around, you know, how do these services emerge? What's the other stuff that you can see that you're excited about? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is where we're going to have this Cambrian explosion of small modes. We exist in a world within a vast ecosystem of, of jobs to be done and kind of different kinds of people. I think that we need a better understanding of demographic data and, and trips taken to understand like what is our direct-to-consumer opportunity? What is our long-term rental opportunity? What's the form factor for shared? What does that look like by market? <laughs> And how does that integrate symbiotically into the public transportation network there? Or, and also into to personal ownership, like what kinds of vehicles should people own and what does that experience look like for them? And I mean, that's a bit redundant given I said direct to consumer earlier, but I think like understanding the persona of the people needing to, to take trips. And this is kind of like a nice little bow on how I started, which was like, you have to think about like the hospitality workers. You have to think about the people who are being impacted by the dual city and figuring out how to facilitate trips for for everyone. And is public transportation the right tool for that job? Like, yeah, we should have bona fide public transportation networks uh, that everyone has access to. But is the is a really affordable direct-to-consumer light mobility device going to help them with their last mile commute to their transportation stop? Like, yeah, I'm sure. So I think, you know, data around trips to be taken, jobs to be done, understanding commuting patterns by demographics and really understanding community need uh, and also where where are transportation deserts and also sometimes cars do make sense a lot of low-income people who live on the periphery of cities and live in rural areas really don't have like a better option so there's a lot of stuff there with congestion pricing where you can have poor impacts on people who are already pretty marginalized so yeah yeah there's just a lot to unpack there yeah so i think just demographic data (laughs) and understanding our vulnerable populations a bit better. When you think about that aspect, who are the companies that you're really excited about in that space? And maybe that can bring us on. I don't know if that's where Data Contours comes in and what they're doing. Well, actually, Data Contours does come in here. Um, so <laughs> we're, we're doing modeling for um, the spread of COVID. It's a, a company started by um, someone who used to work for USAID and did uh, consulting work for the FCC and larger hospital groups here in the Pacific Northwest and uh, across the country. 
And so where this is kind of in line with the work that I've done in terms of demand management for mobility systems is we're really looking at COVID models and we're seeing that there's some numbers like the IHME prediction model for at the federal level and at the state level, but no like hyper local <laughs> prediction models. So that's what we're doing. And we're looking at, you know, the spread of COVID not as like we have X supply of a virus, but we have this many vulnerable people live in this zip or like sub zip code region or area. And we know that the spread of disease is likely to impact them in this way because there's a demand for the disease in that there's, this is an area with a lot of comorbidities or susceptibility to the virus. So they're using hyperlocal community data to work with hospital groups and regional like foundations and nonprofits to generate insights on how to best staff the response to COVID. So we're looking at things of like, in terms of peak number of hospitalizations, peak number of ICU cases. What does that mean in terms of like what they need in terms of ventilators or hospital beds? And if you would have asked me like six months ago, if I would be doing any kind of like epidemiology <laughs> forecasting <laughs> based on my transportation planning yes. uh, and nerdery, I would have not guessed. But um, yeah, the work that Data Contours is doing is just really, really interesting and necessary right now. Mm, cool. The final one that I want to talk about is Karmic. I really like Hong. I think he's kind of the the design they had for the Karmic was it, what was the name yeah. of the Karmic? The Karmic? The Oslo. Oh, that's right. The Oslo. I mean, it was a very interesting bike. So talk us through kind of one, what the bike is two, you know, the, the relationship that you have there and then how you're thinking about that as well. Yeah. So similar to shared, Hong has made, well, similar and not so similar, right? Like Hong has made this new form factor called the Oslo, which is a pedelec bike that can, you can pedal it or you can have the pedal stationary it's a seated form factor that's battery powered and is very sleek looking uh, and is absolutely optimized for last mile trips uh, and any kind of trip that you could take with an e-bike, basically. It was intended for and is intended for shared mobility schema, but could also be used instead of like a public shared mobility schema kind of on like a private campus. It's different from shared in that it is not an MVP or like proof of concept, it is a gorgeously designed form factor. Yeah. Also, Hong's been around the industry for ages. I mean, he's like, he's been yeah. building bikes for ages. Yeah. Deep hardware expertise as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it shows in the Oslo. Everyone should look it up. There's, I think, uh, still Vimeo. I'm like sending everyone to Vimeo today, but like the Oslo promo videos are just gorgeous and it, it shows the form factor. But I actually ride a Karmic oh, bike. Yeah, awesome. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It covers. 98% of all the trips I need to take. And the 2% is just, I'm taking my tiny boat out to the river and I need my tiny Toyota Tacoma yep. to do that. Yeah, tiny Toyota <laughs> so. Tacoma. Indeed. Yes, I believe that's what they are called, tiny Toyota Tacomas. The, the tiny, well, it's like a, it's a baby one. It's like a 1994, like little Oh, okay, before, before, they became, before they turned into the giant beasts they are today. <laughs> yeah. In terms of hardware design, obviously, so like, you obviously write a comic. You, you strike me as an early adopter. You're kind of into the space for it. What do you think the iPhone moment, because it still feels to me in the sort of the space of electric bikes and electric scooters and everything that we still haven't really had an iPhone moment. Like we're still in the sort of, everybody is experimenting with lots of different form factors and you've got the crazy Nokia flip phones that open up and they've got like, you know, round screens and we're trying like, we're trying everything and it's fun. It's an interesting period. But what do you see that, potentially looking like or coming down the pipe. And I want to posit to you that it might look something like a, a Van Moof X3 
an S3. I would love your thoughts on that as well. Oh, nice. I'm going to have to look up the X3. That's the one that just came out, right? Uh, they're announcing it like as of this recording tonight. So yeah. I think, oh, nice. Okay, so I my <laughs> my response to this is something that I think could easily be argued against. <laughs> so it depends. it depends on what you think, but I would say it's really hard for us to have our iPhone moment as an industry right now because it would be like, we don't have adequate infrastructure to support that. It would be like an iPhone happening before cellular networks were established. And I think of like bike infrastructure as like the, the 3G, 4G, 5G towers. Like if we, if we want to carry the metaphor all the way through, it's like we don't have like the network infrastructure yet to really make it explode. And like we actually need to have like the infrastructure in place for more people to adopt. And are there going to be like early adopters? There certainly have been. But I don't think that we're really going to see it take off unless we see the infrastructure changes happen. And I don't think it's going to be one silver bullet solution. I think it's going to be a whole stampede of freaky looking electric vehicles that, you know, are diverse as, you know, the people who live in the city are. So that's my answer. But is it going to be a van move? No, 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 no. Hey, look, I, I get it as well. Maybe I was too optimistic in thinking that we're at the Nokia stage and really we're at the sort of like the car phone stage where you sort of, you're we are. in the 80s, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, look yeah. at this. It cost me only like $7 a minute to make a call. This is awesome. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think I think that that's, that's right. And I've, I've heard Horace call bike share like the blueberry, like city bikes, like the honorary blueberry <laughs> Or Blackberry, sorry, Blackberry, <laughs> yeah. Blueberry, yeah. Uh, Blackberry of micromobility. Um, I was yeah. thinking of blue bikes. Yes. But yeah, the metaphor is interesting. I really respect Horace and his analyses. And I, it's the work that you all have done to the research you've done and, you know, the branding that you've done and the amount of attention that you've called to the space is just so helpful and, and amazing. And, um, you know, personally, I, I think that it's still early days and that, we have a long way to go and it's going to get really interesting. Yeah. I was going to say, are you bullish, less bullish? Final question. Give it three to five years. Are you as bullish as you were before? More bullish, less bullish? Why? On sort of micromobility as an industry. Shared, owned, all that sort of stuff, but just that kind of the thesis of light electric vehicles. It makes a lot of sense, but I think there are so many pieces that have to come together to really facilitate the successful adoption of it. It's policy, it's hardware, it's, it's sustainable business models, it's access, it's, it's land use. It's, it's like so many different things that have to come together. And right now we're kind of living in this fragmented world where people are really attracted to like Jetsons type technology that's not going to be in hand for another 20, 30 years, like autonomous vehicles, like car sized. So really what I think it's going to take for that, the change to happen is a massive reboot, which maybe, you know, will happen after everyone quarantines and realizes they don't have a freaking grocery store within a couple blocks of their house and there's no green space near their house and they're going crazy. Like, I think there might actually, like COVID actually might be um, a really good reset button for people to start thinking about things like land use, like infrastructure, like when they're outside, do they want to feel the breeze in their bangs as they're riding an e-bike down a lovely bike path? Like, I just think that there are so many things that need to happen. And right now I would say that I'm optimistic that people are being forced to think about the things that need to happen for the Cambrian explosion to, to occur quickly. I think that micromobility is inevitable. Fire, <laughs> mic drop. There you go. Yeah. Charity yeah, Duncan, like it- everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, I agree with you about the reset. It certainly feels like that. The one part that actually gives me a little bit of, and this is a sort of somewhat dystopian future vision here, and Horace is going to hate me for saying these things, but he's like, cool, so that's fine. Because he's, he's way more optimistic than I am. He's like, look, these things always rebound. And I'm like, yeah, kind of. But like a prolonged economic depression combined with people not wanting to be inside in the sense of like going in a in a public transport unit or something like that. So like, that is, in my mind, the most bullish thing that we can see in micromobility. It's people still need to get around. They're going to need to get around safely. They're not going to have the money to run a car. Like generally speaking, the auto industry, I'm just like very worried about it. Like there's going to be money printing kind of out the wazoo to try and save it. Yeah, people shouldn't have to go into debt to move around. It's whack. <laughs> yeah, completely. And I see this as like, a good quality e-bike does pretty much, as you say, 98% of your trips for comparably, and it's a three or $5,000 thing. Okay, there's heaps of things you have to solve. You have to solve insurance. You have to solve infrastructure. You have to solve, but like the components are there. All of the things are right. And it so happens, as it turns out, that we need to be doing stuff around climate anyway. And, you know, this is a great way that we can come out of this and be super bullish. So, yeah, look, I'm in your camp. How does insurance change if we start having things like universal healthcare and stuff like that? Like things might get crazy. <laughs> well, we have universal healthcare down in New Zealand and we have accident insurance coverage as well, which is paid for in the sense of everybody pays into a scheme and it pays out if you have an accident. And generally speaking, look, like scooters have done incredibly well here and we have massively growing e-bike base. We're going to sell more e-bikes well, we were on track to sell more e-bikes this year than we are going to sell cars. I saw that, like yeah. New cars. That's yeah. rad. Which is, just makes me incredibly excited. But again, it kind of comes at the same time as, as you say, we need to rethink land use. We need to rethink infrastructure. We need to th- rethink all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Cool. Well, excellent. Look, thank you so much for making the time. This has been such a fascinating chat. Yeah. For folks who, who want to kind of like follow you and, and check out your work, et cetera, how do they get in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter at Tarani Duncan, T-A-R-A-N-I-D-U-N-C-A-N, or at Astral Cowboy, A-S-T-R-A-L Cowboy. Cool. Epic. Well, thank you so much. Uh, hopefully, we can uh, have you back on the show at some uh, later stage. Yeah, this was a lot of fun, Oliver. Thanks for having me. Cool. Thanks. Thanks.